British Spy Stories, Season 1 Spy or Traitor? Episode 16 The air cuts thick along the deeply carpeted top corridor of the British Embassy in Berlin. Marcus Murphy knows that the need for secrecy is at the heart of everything that they do, this side of the diplomatic presence in Europe's most important economy. He has always been completely open with his staff, that they all succeed or fail on the basis of their reliability. If London trusts an MI6 country operation to get things done effectively, then everything in the garden is rosy. The ambassador is given more responsibilities, the MI6 local station chief is heralded with promotion, and knighthoods often beckon in the later years. But cock it up, and a silence descends. You won't hear of your demise, but you'll sense it. You'll notice conversations stop as you walk into rooms in Vauxhall Cross, and memos of import will be sent out with you mysteriously not on the distribution list. Murphy has no intention of putting himself in that position. He walks back to his office from the conference room, where he has just been interviewed for the second time by the investigations branch about the Stranra termination. He doesn't understand why the inquiry is going on for so long. Usually, even though tragic, deaths in the field are to be expected and are dealt with promptly. But this one seems to have a rolling momentum which makes him feel uncomfortable. Unexplained behaviours in the service are always due to some internal inquiry or other, covert or otherwise. Something is nagging in his brain, and it was tapping away inside his head throughout the interview. The investigations branch, or the crows, as they're known, are experts on people lying of course, and probably knew he was being less than open. He didn't lie to them exactly, but they did trigger thoughts in his head, which he didn't immediately voice. It isn't like him to be paranoid, he thinks. His easy, relaxed, bonhomie style has always taken him everywhere that he's wanted to go. But now he should know why Stranraer was killed, and he doesn't. The only measure of competence from London's perspective is your awareness of what is going on in your geography. You have to be the font of all knowledge, or someone else will be drafted in. The truth is that he has become bored of Berlin. Two years is enough in any posting, and even though Berlin is still an eight or a nine on the scale of desirable jobs, he knows he is ready for something more. Ever since he entered the security services, he has wanted to go to Washington. It still holds a kudos, like no other British spy station. Moscow is another posting he craves. Those two are very different MI6 operations, of course, but stimulating, and both are a passport to a more senior role in London. He sits in a leather chair behind his large rosewood desk and types in his password to the desktop computer in front of him. Murphy scrolls through the Berlin activity logs on the day that Stranraer died 
but nothing obvious leaps out at him. He checks the server traffic and drills down into any spikes of activity. One spike shows up inside the embassy and he traces the routing data. The spike source is unregistered on Oberon and he runs a trace program to decipher any barrier applications that the spike user could have been using. He transfers the data to his local machine and loads it into a reporting tool. The display starts to build the result, piece by piece, until the true destination of the spike traffic is evident. The machine flips open a floor plan of the embassy, and the traffic mappings are shown at each desk in the place. Due to the data volume, the spike is the last to load. It builds as Marcus watches. On the display, he can see quite plainly that the spike came from the office on the first floor, outside of the MI6 operational suite. He checks who is allocated to each desk. Then, he stops. The name that comes up is a surprise to him. Coincidence is never a good thing in the world of espionage. And the spike of comms was from the desk of Stuart Palmer. The brightness of the room wakes Sebastian Ulrich. He puts a pillow under his head and lies back in the king-size bed in the most expensive room of the Grand Hotel du Camp Ferrat. Sasha lies asleep next to him, the covers half across her body, her golden limbs outlined against the white sheets. An empty champagne bottle and the remains of cocaine lines are scattered near the bed. He reaches for his phone, taps through the various messages received and answers some of them. The operational cell in Paris has a problem with a dealer who is refusing to pay. In Moscow, the arms shipment is ready to move. And in Berlin, they've killed the nightclub owner who had been caught talking to the police. There is a knock on the door. Ulrich gets up to tell the maid that they should not be disturbed. He is naked, but he doesn't bother to put anything on as a show of his power. He reaches for the handle and turns it. The door is pushed open from behind and hits him in the face. In the second when his eyes are closed from the impact, he feels a fist hit his jaw and the force carry him backwards through the air. He crashes onto the floor ten feet away. You fucking double-crosser, says Robinson, and kicks the man in the groin while he is down. Ulrich writhes in pain. Robinson continues his assault, leaning over and punching him in the face. Ulrich is getting his bearings and starts to fight back. He rolls over and gets up, still wincing from the groin pain. He runs at Robinson and they fall together, punching and gouging. Sasha wakes, runs around them to the bathroom and locks herself in. They fight hard, using the years of practice they have both had, protecting their criminal patches. Ulrich is stronger, but Robinson is bigger. They crash down onto the glass table in the centre of the room, and it showers the carpet with smithereens. There is blood now, 
across Robinson's face and in cuts across Ulrich's body. Robinson produces a knife from the back of his waistband. They stand, arms and legs apart, facing each other. Come on, what are you waiting for? says Robinson between heavy breaths. What the fuck is this about? says Ulrich. Like you don't know, where were you last night? We got screwed. You failed again, Larry? Robinson slashes out across the space between them, but misses his target. If you had been there and not fucking some tart, says Robinson, you'd know we got attack, man, firebombs, the whole lot, some gang shooting us up. What about the gear? Destroyed. They set it on fire. You fucking idiot, says Ulrich. Don't put this on me. They were your contacts supplying that load. They screwed us. No one would destroy the gear if they were stealing it, Larry. Think, says Ulrich. Whoever it was just wanted to screw us over. It was your job to keep the local cops sweet. You didn't do that, and now they've got their own back. As usual with you, says Robinson. It's never your fault when it goes wrong, but you get all the praise when it works out. You bloody set us up, Ulrich. He is spitting every word now. Robinson lunges and brings the blade down with force to within an inch of Ulrich's skin. Sebastian grabs his arm and twists the hand. Robinson turns with all his strength and brings the blade round to face his opponent. The two men push their bodies to force the weapon one way or the other. Ulrich fails first. The knife turns and, in a second, pushes down into Ulrich's flesh. The blood oozes up through the wound, slow at first, then quicker. Robinson pulls out the knife, and Ulrich falls onto the bed, his wound spouting red gore across the bedclothes. Robinson turns away, wipes the blade on a sheet, then walks out purposefully from the room as an injured Ulrich shakes on the bed. Sasha! He screams with all his voice, and the woman appears from the bathroom. I need a doctor. Sasha runs out of the bathroom and kneels down next to him. Sebi, what have they done to you? He winces with pain as she touches his skin. Get the sheet. Push down on the wound quickly. She tears the bedclothes and applies pressure to his shoulder. After three minutes, she gets her phone and dials for an ambulance. She is crying as she saves his life his eyes fluttering between closed and open as the blood spreads up and out across the cotton. She pushes down with her body weight harder and prays to a god she doesn't believe in. Gabby sits on the balcony, overlooking the sea, with the hotel's room service breakfast tray in front of her. She messaged Hans five minutes ago, and he pushes the door to her room and saunters in. How are you feeling? she says. He lifts up his t-shirt and shows her the bandage around his stomach. A bit sore, but it missed me, thank God. I enjoyed it, though. 
he sinks into the chair opposite her. They eat breakfast and talk about the job, and their dreams. Eventually, he says, What about this data you got? I'll get it. She collects the gym and the riverside data from her bag, and adds an envelope to the pile, then sits back down. This is the traffic flow data, she says, handing hands paper printouts of the data from Jim. You can see there are high nodal points in the flows. This is across the period between me calling in the kill location for Mac and his termination being registered on the network. That's about 20 hours. Hans looks at the papers. So nodes 16 and 43 are... London and Berlin. You got IDs? Not yet, she lies. How are you going to find them? he asks. I need to match the nodal lists with the data from Oberon. What else you got? This. She hands him some of the Riverside data on her tablet. Messages from the network for the same time period. No names, he says as he flicks through the screens. Not conclusive yet, Gab. Then there's this. She holds up the envelope, opens the flap, extracts three photographs and lays them on the table between them. What are these? GISS photos from an operation they mounted on the same day. Doing what? Good question. I don't know the answer to that yet, but they were in the building opposite Mac. And in this first image, you can see them at the kill site, and there is Mac's body. She holds a picture up and points to it for hands. That photo has a timestamp of 1558. Now this second picture shows the GISS team in the opposite building, and you can see the kill site in the image. It's time-stamped 1545, 13 minutes earlier. And? She holds up the second picture. There's no Mac in this second picture, she says. Hans takes the print and looks at it intently, up close. Weird, he says under his breath. What time did you leave him? 3.15, she says. And what time did they call in the agent termination to London? 4.28. That doesn't make sense, says Hans. Agreed. Then there's also this picture, taken at 16.03. She holds up the final print. Guess what? Hans shakes his head. No Mac here either, she says just a bloody pool on the concrete floor. The GIS has moved him. Why would they? He says. Maybe he didn't die immediately? And they got medics to him? Says Gabby. But what's rule number one with a gunshot wound? Don't move the body. She raises her eyebrows. So, what have we got? She begins. A GISS team, who may have killed a British assassin, then removed his body, and who had no good reason for being on site in the first place, 
we have a bunch of emails and messages that indicate the kill order needed to fail. And we have some traffic data that indicates someone in London was talking a lot to someone in Berlin in the period of time between the kill location going on to Oberon and Mac's death. And all that tells you what? says Hans. For all the world, it looks like London set up the kill order, then got the Belgian security service to scupper it as a black op, when they could have just cancelled the order, he says. I can't think of another set of circumstances that make all of that data ring true. There's another question. Hans turns his eyes to her expectantly. Why would Riverside give me the messages? What did you think when you met him? says Hans. Was he genuine? Is anyone? They pause. Was he at least genuine about giving you this information? He said to me he wanted to stop the leak. He said the same to me, but I don't think that's the job he was given, she says. But it's not possible to assess his honesty, not yet. Does he know the mole? says Hans. I don't think so, or he would have moved on it. He's an experienced field ops agent. They stop again and let their brains absorb the questions before moving on. So what next? says Hans. I need to confirm who is Node 16, she says. And our friend Riverside is expecting me to get back to him. Could I help? says Hans. You'll be more useful back in Berlin, Gordon, she says. Okay. Then he pauses. You do trust me, Gab, don't you? She considers the question honestly as she looks at him. I do, Gordon. Welcome to a very exclusive club. Geraldine is up at dawn. She showers and dresses and makes tea, then puts on her coat and goes out of the front door to the walkway that runs along one side of the housing block. She walks down to a children's play area and sits on a swing, then reaches into her bag for a packet of cigarettes. The flame from the lighter flares in the cold morning, highlighting her face with a stark yellow stain. She draws heavily on the tobacco and blows a cloud into the sky of half-smoke and half-condensed air. There is no one about at this time in the morning. She has always relished the hours after people have gone to bed and before they rise. To her, this is the real world, unsullied by others, some sort of fundamental truth. Out of the early morning misty haze between the blocks, the outline of a man gradually becomes more defined. She watches his progress as he walks towards her. He wears a white Macintosh and a grey woollen hat. They said you'd come, she says without emotion. And here I am. Are you checking up on me? Not at all, says the man. Nothing has happened. It will, he says. When? Her frustration is genuine. Soon enough, it's only been a day. 
Every day counts. You know that. She takes another long pull on her cigarette. The smoke creates a halo around her in the coldness, dispersing slowly at first, then at speed, as it is caught by the biting wind that whips around the wall at the end of the playground. You'll need anything? he says. Not from you. You only need to say, and I'll be ready. Now, or afterwards. I won't need you afterwards, Ned, she says. I only want to help. You can't. You've never helped. You've always destroyed, always ended things. I don't want to go on ending things my whole life. Life should be about creating, not destroying. It wasn't up to me, he says so quietly that the words are nearly lost in the morning air. You need to take responsibility. I want to be responsible for you. Geraldine laughs. You don't get it, Ned. Tell me, then. Show me. You need to be responsible for your own ideas, your thoughts, your plans. Own them. Do them. When they go wrong, stand up and say, Yes, I did that, and it didn't work out, but I'll learn, and I'll do it differently next time. What do you want me to do? he says. Oh, just be here when I call, Ned. The voice is flat. She turns away from him and blows out a cloud of smoke. Without more words, he walks back into the dawn. She turns to look, but he's no longer there. Stuart sleeps for most of the day, and Geraldine footles around the house, tries to read, watches the television, and makes food for herself as Stuart isn't hungry. After lunch they go for a walk, and talk all the way round about nothing in particular. The flat, for all its faults, is warm, and he stands in the kitchen later, leaning against the units, while she cooks a shepherd's pie. Geraldine has used some of the money from Murphy to buy wine, and they get through a whole bottle without realising it. By the time the sun has gone down, they are full of food and warmth. "'How did you decide that you wanted to be a civil servant?' he says, swirling half a glass of Pinot Noir by the base. Seem natural, she says. It's what Mum and Dad did. Where? Mum was in the Home Office at Queen Anne Gate, she says. She was a clerk, and ended up head of a clerical team. Then she moved to Marsham Street, when they all did, and then retired in 08. What about your dad? Dad was in the Department of Transport. He got up to a Deputy Assistant Director. Impressive, he says. What are they like? She looks at the room, her eyes flicking across the odd combination of pictures that had been purchased by the Foreign Office Procurement Branch, the same set in all safe houses. He waits, watching her contemplate. They were kind, she says. Always kind. I had a happy childhood. Not adventurous but happy. Do you see them much? When I can, says Geraldine. I don't often get back to the UK now. Why is that? His attention is held utterly by the story. She shakes her head. I don't know. I, I should go back more, but 
I don't want to be a burden on them. Why would you be? He says. She doesn't answer, but looks down at the carpet in the sitting room. She leans forward to pick up her wine glass, but fumbles it and spills red wine across the surface. I'll get a cloth, he says, and runs out. Then returns and kneels to mop the liquid. Let me, she says, and puts her hand on the cloth. They both hold it, neither letting go. Their eyes rise to each other's view. There is no barrier between them in that instant, and she lifts her hand to his cheek and feels the warmth of his skin.